You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Back to Twibley, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he's back from the grave and ready to party. <laughs> it's Chef McLarge-Huge. <laughs> hey, man. How's it going? I'm uh, I'm feeling very zippity-doo-dah, if you know what I mean. I bet I do. Yep. So, uh, how'd that go? Yeah. So, like I was talking last week, I went. I was going to go ziplining. I went ziplining. And that's the thing. Yeah, it was cool. It was one of those things that I, it was, I was part of a bachelor party. Mm-hmm. It was me and the guy getting married were the first two to go. And he was like, what the hell am I doing whenever he gets up to the point where you have to like kind of the point of no return? Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, that's but just was, like getting married. That's what it's just, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Get used to it, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, there's four lines and they send you down two by two. So there was this couple that went before us. They send them down and they go, okay, in three two, one, go. And then they pull the cord and the girl screams and off they go. And then they come over to us. They go, and in three, and pulled my cord and I went zipping down. And then I could just hear the guy behind me going, two, one, and go. It's like, you bastard, you got me. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) That was a thing. Again, I've never been ziplining, but I'm always surprised that when go on rides or do those kind of like activities that terrifies the bejeebers out of them, yeah, there was a. It, actually, it wasn't scary though. That was the thing. Well, that's good. There was a time I went to the feast. I don't know. I was probably twenty. Okay, and... for for our listeners, describe yeah. the feast. Oh, the feast is is called the Feast of the Blessed Sacrament. It's the largest Portuguese American festival in the United States, and it has food and musicians and dancing and alcohol and crowds and crowds of people and all kinds of other things. But there's also like an amusement area. So the most dangerous carnival rides in the world are all condensed into like one city block. Oh, you didn't go on those, did you? Oh, yeah. When I was 20, I went on everything. I was insane. Um, yeah, I know, but those in particular. So, so <laughs> anyway, I'm standing in line to get on this one. It's like it's like a Ferris wheel, but inside the Ferris wheel, instead of being just two, a seat where you sit next to somebody and go around in a slow circle, you're yeah. like in a capsule, and there's a steering wheel, and when you turn the steering wheel, it spins the capsule that you're in. Yes. Yeah, and then it goes wicked fast yep. once they load it all up. So I'm. you have to wait in line a long time because they only make the thing spin for a couple minutes, but then they've got to get everybody out of each of the capsules, right? Yes. So And then load people into each of the capsules until they get the whole thing done. So I'm standing there, and it's like 25 minutes, and then they, they, start, bringing, and they start bringing people. They, they, they get everybody loaded up, and then they start it. And you can hear this one particular capsule is just this. It's rotating super fast as it's going around and around in a big circle. Yep. And you can hear this just shrill, blood-curdling, expletive-filled <laughs> screaming coming out of it. And everybody below is like, oh, well, that person doesn't seem to be enjoying this ride very much. Let's and not get on cart 25. Let's, let's try that one. Yeah. Right. Yes. So they fi- when they finally open that one up, it's this little... 
this girl. She's maybe, I don't know, 17 or 18 years old. And she comes staggering out, staggers down the ramp off of the platform where this deadly ride is, is set up. Yep. And her boyfriend comes staggering down after her. As soon as he gets to the bottom of the ramp, he puts his hand on her shoulder and she turns around and she punches him directly right in the face and drops him <laughs> to his knees. <laughs> it was the funniest thing I've ever seen at the feast. She laid him right out and then she stormed <laughs> off. It was so funny. I want to say that she turned around and she had like, I never touch that steering wheel again, but I don't think she said anything. I think she just started to cry after she punched him. And then no. nobody else wanted to get on the ride. I was looking at my, I was with my friend and I looked at him. I'm like, I don't know if I want to get on that ride. When you're telling me, you know, about getting on the zip line, all I can think of is that poor girl getting into the, into the cart with her boyfriend, probably like second date. Oh, come on, honey. We'll go to the feast. It'll be great. Oh yeah. Watch this. And it ended with a, a knuckle sandwich instead of a casserole sandwich. <laughs> Honey, why are you putting in a mouth guard? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I can't imagine making somebody that I was dating so mad that their only response to my human touch was a punch in the face. But, yeah. oh, my God, it was so funny. Like one of those spinning kicks like you see in movies and stuff. Wow. Oh, it was, yeah. it was, this was like a movie. Like she literally, she like her hand was down low. Because she was like bent over and had her hands on her knees like she was going to vomit. She just, oh, she waylaid him. It was, you could hear it. It sounded like somebody hitting a home run. Oh, my God. Everybody went, ooh, in the line. Oh, God. And he just dropped to his knees. It was so funny. All right. So uh, this is going to be the week beginning October the 25th. But before we get started, I have my award-winning and always very popular a trivia question. Now, last week, we kind of screwed the pooch, the but we fixed that. I got the trivia question wrong. It wasn't David Bowie that played the saxophone. It was David Bowie's saxophone teacher. Whatever. All right. So this week, similar question. The song. David Bowie. Not David Bowie. The song, <laughs> When Doves Cry by Prince. You know the song, right? I do. Dig, if you will, the picture. It is not Prince, and it is no member of the revolution who plays bass guitar on when doves cry i am going to go out on a limb and i'm gonna say one of he's not one of our celebrity birthdays that we mentioned this week but he's a celebrity birthday for this week and i'm gonna say it's bootsy collins uh solid guess we'll get to the answer at the end of the show but october 25th this is your week to start i believe yes October 25th, 1960, the very first electronic watch is put up for sale in New York City. Ooh. Um, yes, it does not sound exciting. This is No, the, it doesn't. Called... But like, wait, <laughs> 1960 and it's the first, was electric watch? Electronic. So it's the first one that had transistor technology into it. Okay. That what you're seeing is that we figured out a way to miniaturize stuff enough that we could make it small enough to fit in a modern, into a, a wristwatch, where prior to this, you'd have to wind a watch. It would be a clockwork mechanism with a spring right. that allowed the watch to keep time, and you'd have to keep messing around with it. Remember, like, if you watch a like a spy movie from the 50s, and they go, synchronize watches. That's because everybody's watch was at a different time, because they all had different springs. Right, right, right. Right? And remember, there was also, like, you could overwind your watch and break it. I remember that, yes. too. Yeah. That's always no, that's never fun. Yep. So what this watch did was it took those, it didn't take all the moving parts out, but it took the spring part out. Okay. Instead of having um, the piezo resistance to make the thing work, it used a, a what would become known as a watch battery. Yep. 
yep. set of transistors. And it was produced by Bulova and sold as an Accutron. I'm going to guess they were hellaciously expensive when they first came out. The Accutron. Bulovas are hellaciously expensive now. But the selling point was that it wouldn't lose any time. You wouldn't have to adjust it except for maybe once every 30 or 40 days. It might lose a second or two. And you could adjust for it, which is vastly different than having a wind-up watch on your wrist. And that, yeah, that's amazingly accurate for those times. That's wildly inaccurate for now, right? Yeah, now it's like, so I'm a second off, throw it in the trash. Right. Consider like the evolution of the wristwatch. The wristwatch was invented during World War One, so you got to go back 50-some-odd years before you get to 1960, right? Right. 45, 50 years. And then you get an electronic watch, and then the next evolution of watches in the 1970s were LED-faced watches, and then ultimately LCD watches and digital watches that became kind of what you see today. Now it's the Apple Watch, which is tied to your phone and has all the functions of the Accutron plus 900 million thousand other things. Right. We've come like full circle because it's like the you get the fancy displays that look like an analog clock. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. yeah. There was an episode of Columbo in the 70s where... The whole case hinged on Christopher Lee, who was the villain. Like, anytime he's cast as... And special guest star, Christopher Lee. It's like, oh, there's the villain. Yep. Christopher Lee had had a digital watch, and he said every time he showed it, and he showed it to everybody, because, <laughs> like, the murder happened at, like, you know, where were you at 7 o'clock last night? He's like, well, at 7.02, I was in the kitchen. Looking at my and, watch. And he'd say, you know, how did you know it was 702? He goes, well, I have a watch that prints out the time. <laughs> and he'd push a button and it would like red numbers that said 702 or whatever. So that's how we knew exactly what time it was. And that was like the whole linchpin to the stupid plot of that episode. But I always remember that. And whenever I look at a digital watch, I can always hear his voice saying, I have a watch that prints out the time. When I was in third grade, my mom had bought me a watch that had like Star Wars on it. And it was a digital watch, but it wasn't LCD, it was LED, right? Right. So in order for you to see the time, you had to press the button. And I wore out that battery in like a week, right? Mm -hmm. And I was like, Mom, I need a new battery. And she's like, I'm not buying you a battery for that thing every week. And I don't think she ever replaced the battery on that thing. (laughs) I think that those those like kids cheapo watches, it was a a race to see if the band was going to break, the battery would burn out, or you'd accidentally drop it in the tub and ruin it. Right. (laughs) <laughs> um, all within the space of the first seven days you owned it, because I killed a bunch of those, too, when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. All right, let's move on to October the 26th of 1993. Uh, this is a, such a crazy story, dude. <laughs> on October 26, 1993, a 25-year-old man from Pennsylvania is sentenced to one year in prison for his part in the Pepsi syringe hoax. What had happened was there was this elderly couple, and this this was like earlier in the year, like in June, that had left a can of Pepsi out overnight and then like found a syringe in the can. And I don't know if they were just like, you know, senile or something and put their insulin, you know, thing inside the can or something like that or whatever, you know, by mistake. Because the first phone call they made, you know, wasn't to like the hospital, like I just found a syringe in my... uh, no, the first person they called was a lawyer, so that's suspect. But it went on and on and on. Like after they found the syringe, and you know, the course of newspapers are uh, alerted. All these other people started saying that they found stuff in their Pepsi can. The next case was like a couple of miles away, but then it spread all over the country, like as far away as Florida and stuff like that. Right? Yeah, it wasn't long before it, you know, Pepsi and newspapers and all that. We're getting all these phone calls of people claiming that they found stuff inside of their soda can, including but not limited to 
a, uh, a Phillips head screwdriver, a bullet, and my favorite, mysterious brown goo. <laughs> that was that mysterious brown goo Pepsi flavored is what I want. Yeah, the know. mysterious brown goo turns out. Yeah, the mysterious blob of of brown goo turned out to be Pepsi. <laughs> oh, big surprise there. This is on the heels of, I guess it's about 10 years, what, 10 years later than the, the Tylenol tampering. Right. The Tylenol uh, tampering murders, was right? 82, right. I think it was like seven people ate Tylenol capsules that had been tampered with and filled with sodium cyanide, and they just dropped dead, you know, from headache to morgue in like two seconds flat and changed the whole nature of how those products were managed. Like you can't buy capsules anymore because they could have been tampered with and it created a whole industry of tamper-resistant packaging and stuff. And clearly people realized that if you could convince a company that you bought something that was adulterated potentially yep. by potentially employees at the potentially manufacturing plant where it was you know, made, packaged or whatever, then rather than have this bad press, they'd pay you money. You right, know, right, hey, right. Look at that. You know, and who isn't terrified of like sticking their tongue with a syringe? I don't want that. You know, <laughs> That's, I'm sure Pepsi didn't want that. So, uh, yeah, the, the whole thing turned out to be like a big hoax. The representative from Pepsi said, we've gone through every can line, every plant and numerous records. And all evidence points to the syringes going into the cans after they were open. Jeez. It's like putting your own toy in the cereal box, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So one person, apparently multiple, but one person, uh, yeah, went to jail for a year and now that kind of uh, they've you know they've updated the laws and stuff and since then filing a false report is now a federal offense that is punishable by 5 years in prison and up to $250,000. Jeez. Yeah, that's a lot of jingle. For for definitely trying to do the whole uh hey uh me and my brother found this mouse in a bottle of your beer. <laughs> you know, trick to try and get a free case Elsinore beer. Yeah. Like well the laws are different the good. laws are different in Canada. I'm sure in the United States it wouldn't be so lenient. Right. All right. So moving on to the 27th. Well, it's funny that we're talking about like consumer products and stuff because in 1969, October 27th, 1969, Ralph Nader sets up a consumer organization known as Nader's Raiders. And this is following the success of his book and all of the notoriety that came with him writing the book Unsafe at Any Speed. Right which pretty much caused the death knell of the Chevrolet Corvair and brought about a lot of other concerns about the way cars are manufactured and the lack of safety equipment that's in them and how dangerous automobiles just are in general, especially in 1966 to 1969. Nader's Raiders were a bunch of like college age uh, lawyers. And it was a, it was a big deal because I think Congress thought like, yeah, these guys are great. They're going to go mess around. They're going to go yell at Ford for the Ford, you know, the Pinto. I don't know, Pinto <laughs> or something. Or, or they're going to complain about General Electric for like an explosive oven or some other crazy thing. And what they actually did was they did a study on the Federal Trade Commission and they were like, the Federal Trade Commission is corrupt. Everybody here is too old. You're not doing the things that you're supposed to. This is terrible. You're wasting all kinds of money. And they like went in and they produced this big report on government agencies and caused a tremendous amount of angst because these agencies had people appointed to lead them that were like in their late 60s and early 70s and had been dealing with taking graft and stuff for years and years and years. And with Nader putting out all of this evidence of corruption, it forced Congress to change the way that it sort of did business with business. Yeah. I, they were, <laughs> now, we were talking about prior to the show, because that's a little bit different than what I thought we were going to talk about, because in this... 50s, 60s, and 70s, which is right around the time that Ralph Nader's Raiders were, you know, going all kung fu bananas and all that. There was some deathly toys that children could play with. Right. 
that you figured that's what he would go after. Wasn't right. there some sort of toy that like had radioactive isotopes and stuff? Yeah, there was a chemistry set made in the 50s by the company that made erector sets that was a, an atomic lab that had four <laughs> different atomic isotopes, low radiation isotopes, and a scope, and a Geiger counter, and all this other stuff. If you played with it and followed the directions exactly, it was perfectly safe. Yeah. <laughs> but which kid plays with anything without a parent there, you know, oh, right. like overseeing the directions, right? Oh, my God. It's like, yeah, it's like, you, if, and if you do it wrong, you don't have any younger brothers or sisters or, or children for that matter. Yeah. You end up poisoning everybody in your house and all your siblings are uh, mutants. Your cat has two tails now. Um, what's kind of interesting, though, is like not growing out of Nader's Raiders, but definitely growing out of the idea of what Nader's, Nader and Nader's Raiders did was the Consumer Product Safety Commission, which is what really focused on consumer products right. as a way to sort of figure out what was and wasn't safe. So they finally were like, can't sell lawn darts anymore. <laughs> Those things are deadly. No more lawn darts. You know, we've already got one stuck in a kid's head. No more. And then like the Battlestar Galactica Colonial Viper that had a missile you could shoot out of the front of it that choked a kid to death. All right. Yeah. You know, I remember buying like a Star Trek disc gun. Those things are awesome. But you can't. Right. Yeah. The, no, those you can. That's eyeball waiting to fall out. Right. Right. That seeded the, uh, I don't know if you remember this, the Saturday Night Live sketches for Mainway Toys, where it was Horace Mainway, played by Dan Aykroyd, was the, the owner of Mainway Toys, and all of his toys were horrifically dangerous. One was like, <laughs> eh, it's a big bag of glass. What kid doesn't like that? You know, it's a, it's a big bag, a jagged piece of broken glass, and we just find him in the street. Another one was like the Johnny Invisible Man costume for Halloween, which was just a black leotard and mask. <laughs> Our kids' toys aren't nearly as fun anymore, but also why the life expectancy has gone up a couple of years. Right, exactly. Yes, more kids make it to breeding age. <laughs> so they're not thinned out by the toys that they played with. All right, so moving on to October the 28th, 1978. October 28th, 1978, NBC's movie of the week is Kiss Meets the Phantom, later to be known <laughs> as Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park. Later to be known as Kiss Meets the Phantoms or Kiss Verse. I don't know. It's got a bunch of different names, but who boy, it's a movie. Uh, have you ever seen the Kiss movie that was made, Kiss Meets the Phantoms? Uh, I saw this when it aired on TV. As did I. And it was uh, the greatest thing ever for an, I, an eight-year-old kid. <laughs> I, I was I couldn't believe that I was allowed to watch it because I that was the night that my brothers and I stayed over at my grandmother's house uh -huh. and she was like eight o'clock bedtime that's just how it is and we had begged can we please watch this and she's like all right and I remember her sitting in her chair watching it with us and she kept looking over at us like what the hell is this stupid movie about yeah. are you enjoying this and and I don't remember anything other than I was confused by the whole experience <laughs> and it wasn't very good. And I was only eight. And I remember like a few months later watching the Star Wars holiday Christmas special. Which is no better. And thinking, <laughs> and thinking that was terrible too. So 1978 was a bad year for kids TV. But I don't remember anything about Kiss Meets the Phantom of the Park because that's the only time I've ever seen oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. I've seen it a bunch of times. I bet you. Yeah, I actually own it on DVD. I have like, it's like a special edition. There's like extended scenes and stuff like that. It was pitched to the guys in, uh, in Kiss. It was like it was supposed to be like Star Wars meets James Bond or something like that. Uh -huh. And it was produced by Hanna-Barbera. It's got a definite Scooby-Doo feel to it, you mm -hmm. know? Yep. 
the premise of it is there is a, uh, a mad scientist that works in this underground layer of a theme park. Kiss is going to be doing a concert over there. So he makes like android doubles of Kiss to destroy mm-hmm. Kiss. It's Everything about that movie is just contrived and hilarious. One of the best parts is Ace Fraley was notorious for like, he, he was like so done with that project that he would like mm-hmm. just walk off the set. You know, because yeah. I don't know if you've ever done any acting, but like film acting, there's a lot of waiting around, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he would just get bored and stuff, so he would like leave. And then it would be like his time to film stuff and he wouldn't be there. So if you watch the movie, you can see scenes with no Ace Fraley in it. They just have yep. like his body double. So his body double was this like African-American dude. And <laughs> and even though he's got like grease paint and, and stuff like that on... You know, the facial features of an African-American is much different from, you know, some white kid from the Bronx, you know? Yeah. So you could look at it it's like, that is so not Ace Frehley. <laughs> <laughs> and then the overdubs of the movie because, you know, the, the sound quality and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Peter Chris never showed up for the overdubs. His voice was done by, like, a voice actor, you know, but oh, somebody geez. that worked for Hanna-Barbera. And you're like... Why does he sound exactly like Robin from the Batman and Robin cartoon? <laughs> was, it, was it Casey Casey? No, it wasn't Casey Casey. It, was it was another guy. Hey, boo-boo. <laughs> hey, 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 Paul and Gene. Yeah, that'd be super... Yeah, Phantom stole our picnic basket. <laughs> that'd be super funny if he talked like... Beth, I hear you calling. He's, he's laughing. Like... But I can't come home right now. <laughs> he's laughing like Bonnie <laughs> Rubble. He's like... <laughs> oh, Gene. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, too oh yeah, it's uh, not the worst mistake Kiss ever made. That's foreshadowing, kids. A little bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, yes. it is ultimately though what was kind of like the death nail in what was the original lineup of Kiss. After that, you know, both Peter and Ace were like, "This is not what I signed up for. This is ridiculous." I'm, I'm sure Gene was like, "You know, we really needed you to step up for the Phantom." Yeah. And Paul Stanley's like, "I'm gonna be writing a disco song over here." <laughs> so yep kiss meets the phantom of the park the greatest kiss movie of all time all right let's go on to the 29th all right october 29th 1973 my favorite car company and yours bill volkswagen uh-huh. sues national lampoon magazine because they published a fake ad this is 73 so they're still making the beetle yes right? volkswagen's ad campaign one of the magazine ad campaigns for the beetle was it could float yes it was so light they could float. So National Lampoon's ad was if Ted Kennedy drove a Volkswagen, he'd be president today. This is just a couple years after um, the Chappaquiddick, Chappaquiddick oh where he God. drove his car off a bridge and it sank and he swam out. But Mary Jo Kopechny didn't and she drowned. Yes. So that's admittedly funny. I'm yeah. not going to lie. I right. giggled when I read it. And it's National Lampoon. It's satire. And it's National Lampoon. And it's satire. Yeah. Volkswagen being the... The Volks, Volkswagen, yep. or Volkswagen, as they, they, I guess they're called in German, yep. like, we do not find this funny, this satire, so-called satire of yours, yeah. and they sued. We are not amused. This would cost you 30 million of your so-called dollars. <laughs> um, they didn't get that far. <laughs> they didn't get that far. They sued for $30 million, and I'm pretty sure they would have been bodily thrown out of court at that point right. by any judge worth their salt. But National Lampoon agreed to like pull back any unsold copies of the magazine and then 
not release it with the ad in it right. to make Volkswagen happy. And I think they were forced um, to apologize as well. And they were forced. We're sorry. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny because like, I'm sure that if it didn't, it would have ended up being a case that discussed what is intentional parody or satire and what means fair use. There are other cases that get into this. One of the birthday boys for the week, again, that we're not talking about this time around, but is Larry Flint. Yes. He's born on the 31st, right? Larry Flint was sued the same way by Jerry Falwell in the early 1980s for running an ad for like fake alcohol with Jerry Falwell as the spokesman talking about having sex with his own mother. Right. And it was super duper controversial because Falwell was like, ah, you can't do that. And sued him. It was ruled that, hey, you know what? That's intentional parody or satire, man. You're, right. on, you're on your own. And also in the Volkswagen case, I, I don't understand why Volkswagen's mad. I'd be, if I was like Ted Kennedy, I'd be more mad than Volkswagen. Maybe Kennedy got Volkswagen to do it. Look, I can't, I can't have my hands on this. <laughs> it's just funny. I'd love to push both of the Volkswagens that I had into the ocean and see if they floated. <laughs> All right. So moving on to October the 30th of 2012, Walt Disney purchases Lucasfilm Limited uh, and its right to all the Star Wars and Indiana Jones stuff for $4.05 billion. You'd think with that much money burning a hole in his pocket, George Lucas would do something like do another franchise of films called like Sklarglors <laughs> or something and just like, I've got ideas for three more films I'll, and instead of Luke Skywalker, I'll call him Bob. Yeah, My new story, uh, Space Battles. <laughs> you have the Death Star, I've got the Death Store. <laughs> Completely different thing. Yeah. You know? So this starts like a, a interesting question because Disney owns basically everything but Batman now, I think. Batman and Looney Tunes. So that's like the what they call the ship of Theseus. You know, if you replace all the parts of a ship, by the time you've replaced everything, do you still have the same ship? It's like there's a couple of bands that have like no original members left. Like... <laughs> Like, yes, for an example. Bachman-Turner Overdrive featuring none of the original lineup. So it's, there's no Bachman, no Turner, and this is a manual transmission, so there's no overdrive. Or I just saw an article a couple of months ago where Rudy Sarzo has returned to Quiet Riot. It's like, yeah, because the only other original member was the drummer, and he died. So there is no Quiet Riot. You're just Quiet Riot now. Yes. So yes. whenever... Nobody that was involved with Star Wars, I guess except for a couple of the actors, but if like George Lucas and his team weren't making the movie, how much of it could be considered Star Wars? And the same goes for the Muppets. Right. Did you see any of the modern Muppet movies that Disney did? No, I haven't. Okay. They're both actually hilarious, but in the first one that they did, you know, just called The Muppets, Fozzie Bear was making like, he goes, hey, look, it's fart shoes. And he was walking and the shoes are going... And it's like that kind of humor wouldn't have happened on Jim Henson's watch. You know, right. both of those movies, I thought they were hilarious, to be honest with you. There was a moment in Muppets Most Wanted, the second one. There was a song that they did in that one that I ugly laughed for about five straight minutes. But like I said, it begs the question, how much of it is... Is it Star Wars or how much of it is the Muppets when there's nobody involved in it? Again, that's I guess that's what the whole you know, arguing about what what is intellectual property versus what is a product, yeah. right? They technically they own the intellectual property. They can do what they want with the trademarked characters and other things, which is why you can do things like write a Star Wars film that changes the origin story of a character or changes the backstory of a character enough so that their original incarnation, whatever the previous owners 
stuff was doesn't make any sense anymore. I guess something to do with Return of the Jedi is being retconned or was retconned at some point. Right. Recently, and it's like... I. I don't have a dog in this fight. Like, I don't... Lucas sort of started doing that kind of stuff where he started adding things like, oh, I'm going to add more spaceships. And so I'm going to, you know, make Han shoot second and Greedo shoot first. And then, no, 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 wait, wait. Han shoots first and then... I'm going to change Anakin's eyebrows. And he changes it so that other people can, like, go back and retcon and change things and then the universe sort of adjusts to it. Okay, so, like, I mean, I know a lot of people had a lot of problems with the... Disney Star Wars sequels. And you can make the argument here and there. I mean, to me, there's nothing to get too riled up about. At the end of the day, it's just movies. The Mandalorian told an excellent story. But the whole thing is, like, the books that came out after the movies, like the expanded universe stuff, Right. none of that was written by George Lucas. You know, right. and I know people had a lot of love for those stories, too. So well, it's, yeah, it's a mind, weird like, argument Lu- to be making. But, I mean, Lucasfilm had approval over whatever was done there. Right. Whatever was done for those those licensed, again, they're licensed products. Yeah. So they own the intellectual property. So they would put together, like, a, what's called a, a writer's guidebook, a writer's Bible. It's like, hey, you can't have Han Solo fall in love with Greedo. You just can't. Right. As much as it you'd like to, you can't do it. You can't have Luke Skywalker's aunt and uncle come back to life. So you have to like play with them because they have all this established canon and they want the stories to kind of hold together. Right. And you have a whole bunch of different writers who are all writing. So they're all writing from the same shared group of common rules. Once that was all sold off to Disney, they're like, eh, whatever. So we'll, yeah, we'll take these under advisement, but we'll start to make other films. And what can we monetize out of the mythology already that we have? So that's why we ended up with stuff like Rogue One, plot of which was revealed in the first paragraph of the scroll in 1977. So that, I don't know, because people, I guess they figured people needed to see that. I I don't know why, but... That's a lot of people's favorite one, too. Like you were saying about, like, the guidebooks, I kind of wish the guidebook had said something like, please, no forced Skype calls. (laughs) (laughs) That's another argument for another day. Which, by the way... Moss, can you explain the lightsaber now, please? You freaking cliffhanged us in the first freaking movie and you never explained yourself. You never explained it. You... Sorry, so uh, wrapping up the week, Halloween. 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 What do we got? Uh, October 31st, 1992, in a great gift to the universe, the Roman Catholic Church reinstates Galileo Galilei after 359 years of excommunication for pointing out that the uh, universe didn't revolve around the Earth. He could not be reached for comment. <laughs> they jailed him for that, too, didn't they? Yeah. It just reminds me of that old Tex Avery cartoon about the, the oldest prison in the United States. When y'all going to let me out of here? <laughs> <laughs> well, the answer to that question is, you're never getting out. Yep. The answer to that question is, 1992. Right. Our um, good friend Galileo Galilei kind of observed that the Earth was not the center of the universe and the sun did not revolve around it. Instead, the sun was the center, the earth revolved around the sun, and then we learn much later that that is only one small piece of a big rotating thing called a galaxy, which possibly rotates about a a universe or a supersphere, which is another theory that I like a lot. I'm not surprised that it took 359 years for the Catholic Church to reverse itself and do this, but... At, at, at what point did like Pope John Paul, because he was Pope at the time, he he must have been looking down. He's like, "What's this? Pope will dictate? Uh, Galileo? He's still in trouble." I love that song. <laughs> oh my God, we love. Yeah, I love that song. Right? Or he yeah, or he heard Queen on the radio. Whatever happened to that guy anyway? <laughs> oh, he's still he's still excommunicated. Still excommunicated. 
Oh, my God. Like, we left him out there? Uh, we got to fix this. All right. So let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. October the 25th, 1881. Pablo Picasso. uh, Ah. Yep. Surrealist painter. Known as the founder of the Cubism movement. But I don't know if he was the founder. I think there was some Cubism going on around before that. He was probably, like, the most popular. The Beatles didn't invent psychedelia. They were just the most popular of it. Right, right. I don't know if he was, he's considered the founder of the Cubist movement, but he definitely is the most famous Cubist painter that came out of the movement. And his style had evolved from when he was doing things back in the early 1900s versus when he was much older and did stuff like the painting at Guernica, the big Spanish painting that talks about the destruction of the the city of Guernica during the Spanish Civil War. Also, the subject of my favorite Adam and the Ant song from the Prince Charming record. That's a great song. I actually really like Picasso's work, and it's because that's I heard of him first from the Adam Ant song, and then researched him from there. But I ended up really liking his stuff. I've seen a bunch of his stuff like in person. It's enormous. It's much bigger than I thought it was going to be. They have a Picasso. I think they might have two, but they have one on display in the Courier Museum here in New Hampshire right now, oh. which I was just in front of for like I don't know how many hours, but it was like oh, it was amazing. Okay, moving on to the 26th. Who do we got? October 26, 1946. His parents decided to buy a vowel, <laughs> and Pat Sajak was born. The vowel being why? <laughs> why were you born? And the answer was so that he could host Wheel of Fortune. Yeah, for the majority of his life, yeah. He wasn't the first host. The first host was actually Chuck Woolery. But nobody remembers that because it wasn't very popular then. Pat Sajak's the one who made it popular. Yeah, Pat Sajak and Vanna White, I'm sure, definitely contributed to it. Or as Pat Sajak says it, Vanna White. I always sort of looked at that show as like the special ed version of Jeopardy. Yeah, they always put it back to back, too. Yeah. And Jeopardy was next. So like you'd watch Wheel of Fortune, and you're like, come on, you ding dong. You'd you'd solve the puzzle like two seconds in, and they're like, "Um, can I have an F as in phone book? And you're like yelling at the screen, and then Jeopardy comes on, and you're just like, drooling into your coffee cup because you feel like an idiot. Right, exactly. i got to calculate the what now? <laughs> I'll take uh, incredibly difficult math for 500, Alex. <laughs> I'll take yeah. things only I know for 1,000. <laughs> right. People who've never been in my house. <laughs> uh. All right, so moving on to the 27th, October the 27th, 1941. Oh, we just mentioned this last week, sort of. Bond, Simon Le Bon. Uh, Simon oh, Le Bon, lead right. singer from Duran Duran. The band that seems to like come around every 10 or 15 years and do like a reunion tour that makes 10 jillion dollars and then they disappear for a while. Yeah. They, uh, they don't they, release a new record or anything and then they come back and they do another reunion tour. They put out a couple of singles this year. It's fine. They they sound you know fantastic. I saw them when they put out one of their comeback albums, <laughs> one of their uh, bi- biannual comeback albums. I think it was called All You Need Is Now, or at least that was a single. That album was fantastic and I saw them on that tour. And, like, they hadn't aged a bit. They were fantastic. They they, yeah. they sounded great. Yep. Very consistent. They always have been. Yeah. yeah. Every once in a while, though, because I looked up the album that came out, like, two years after All You Need Is Now, and, well, let's, you know, back to the drawing board, guys. <laughs> we were talking about this at work. One thing about Duran Duran lyrics, don't read too much into them because they're completely nonsensical. It's like somebody dropped poet magnets on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> I always think that they were just meant to be a springboard for like the sort of semi-operatic scaling that 
Simon Le Bon does when he sings, like in Wild Boys, where he goes from like Wild Boys to really rock, <laughs> all, like all the way up to scale, and, and it's like, I, what what syllable was that? I think he just said wild. Yeah, the, the, when he goes from singing Wild Boys to get me out of this freaking water, <laughs> I'm drowning, drowning. All right, moving on to the twenty eighth. October 28th, 1974, brother of River Phoenix and is very famous in his own right, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, rose to fame in Gladiator and walked the line, born in Puerto Rico, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Yeah, most famously now for the Joker movie. Yep. Which is a very popular movie. I know a lot of people that like it. There's me being positive. Folks should go back and watch the film that he did just before the Joker called You Were Never Really Here. Oh, yeah. That was great. Was it? Yes. I had to watch it with subtitles on because he's he mumbles like literally every line he has in that movie. And everybody else talks normal. Not that there's a lot of talking. But when people talk to him, they're like, hey, have you found the thing? And he goes, it's like what the hell is he talking about and at one point he gets like shot through the face so his face is swollen so he's like it's like it's a great movie subtitles are necessary and he's a bit of a method actor too like you'll see him and he'll have like the big long beard he's kind of a bit of a spacey guy He, he did that whole like that fake rapper thing for a while to set up the film that he was doing like he's out there i i love the fact that he's as weird as he is i haven't seen joker but i've seen a ton of his other stuff and i like everything he's the best thing in signs all right moving on to the 29th another actor born in 1947 richard dreyfus richard dreyfus most famous i would say for for paying hooper in uh and hooper drives the boat and jaws did you know that he actually auditioned to be c-3po in the original star wars Oh, no, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. The original idea for C-3PO wasn't to be this, like, polite British gentleman. He actually envisioned him as talking like a used car dealer. So it's like, oh. picture Richard Dreyfus doing that. With, with his voice, the Richard Dreyfus, the wingy wingy. Well, I guess that would make the whole, like, I've worked with this droid before. Seeing it on Tatooine where they Luke's uncle buys the busted up R5-D4 that oh, blows right, up. Right, this right. thing's got a bad motivator. And then he's like, well, I've worked with this droid. He's a good droid. Look, let's come with me. <laughs> it would have been cool if he was like, hey, look, this sweet little R2 unit's only got 40,000 miles on it. It's, uh, you know, it was owned by a princess and she never really went anywhere. <laughs> and uh, he's wicked short, too. We watched that movie, Polar, and he was in it mm-hmm. towards the end. And he was like standing up at the bar next to the guy. I was like, what the hell? Is he in a hole? But no, Richard Dreyfuss is like, I think he's like 5'4". He's, yeah, he's really short. He's played a couple of good villain roles. He was the villain in uh, the movie The American President, that Aaron Sorkin movie, which was a good flick. Going on to October the 30th, who do you got? October 30th, 1939, woman whose voice sort of defined late 60s rock, Grace Slick from the Jefferson Airplane. Yes, former Worst Song Ever alumni, yeah. I was going to say, and and also from Jefferson's Starship, and then from Starship, and then from What the Hell Am I Doing in This Shitty Band. Yeah, and then she built this city on rock and roll. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, Grace Slick, unbelievably like cool voice. I mean, White Rabbit is probably one of my favorite songs from that era. Mm-hmm. Now, Chick-fil-A used their song, uh, used the Jefferson Airplane song, Don't You Want Somebody to Love, for one of their uh, their advertisements. Now, Chick-fil-A has in the past, you know, given money to anti-LGBTQ uh, establishments and charities and stuff like that. 
And Grace Slick, being the stand-up individual that she is, whenever they use the song, she used her proceeds and she gave it to Lambda Legal, which is an organization that works to advance the civil rights of the LGBTQ community and people who live with HIV. So, yep, you know, you want to give money in this direction? Well, I'm going to take your money and I'm going to push it in the other direction. So sure that they didn't come to buy any more songs from her after that. Yeah, probably not. Uh, Did they go to see the next person? Wow. Two people in a row from our worst song ever (laughs) alumni born on Halloween, October 31st of 1967. Mr. Robert, don't call me Rip Van Winkle, better known to the world as Vanilla Ice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah, we talked about him at length. And I think we said about as much as we could possibly say about him on our worst song ever uh, worst worst song ever episode. Isn't he doing something with like furniture now? No, he's still playing out. Is he's he? still playing out. Yeah, he, I don't think he's got any new records. He's probably out there doing like the Hey, remember me? And he does Ice Ice Baby and the song from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2 and probably Ice Ice Baby grunge style because he had a new metal band for a very short time. And, and then he's like, see ya. I think the last place that I saw that he was playing is, was like at the Gathering of the Juggalos. Now, I've looked at those now because of the worst song ever we did. Now, you know damn well he closed with Ice Ice Baby. Yeah. But the first song of the set was more than likely the worst song ever all right jeff this is not quite the first time that we've got a repeat offender for worst song ever but it kind of is a couple of months ago we talked about gene simmons's cover of firestarter well gene simmons allegedly has something to do with our worst song ever this week our worst song ever this week comes from the band kiss ah yes In the very late 80s, up until that point, they had put out a lot of subpar albums. You know, in the in the non-makeup days, there was, right. uh, you know, In Order. There was Lick It Up, yep. Animalize, yep. Asylum, Crazy right. Nights, and then Hot in the Shade didn't come out yet. So Crazy Nights was the last album that they had put out at that point. So they had put out a number of, you know, clunker albums. I mean, the singles did well. I mean, people know the song Lick It Up, people know Heaven's on Fire, people know Tears Are Falling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This, you know, the singles did well, but they weren't doing like what they were, the kind of business they were doing in the 70s. Also, Kiss had a real hard time finding their new identity in this world. You know, as they, you know, their words, not mine, hiding behind the makeup for so long that they didn't really know how to be, you know, Paul Stanley didn't know how to be Paul Stanley. He only knew how to be the star child. And Gene Simmons, probably the worst casualty of them all, you look at pictures of Gene Simmons, and he didn't really find himself until probably in the 90s, because you see him in the 80s, and he just doesn't know what to do with himself. You know? Nah, he's making. A, he made a bunch of movies instead. He was like, nah, yeah. I'll, until we figure out what we're going to do, I'm going to go be in like, Wanted Dead or Alive with Rutger Hauer. Yep. He was so used to being the demon on stage, he didn't know how to be Gene Simmons. So I, they put out this greatest hits album called Smashes, Thrashes, and Hits. There were three new recordings on this album. You know, it was all, it was a greatest hits album from their makeup days, from their non-makeup days, et cetera, et cetera. There was three new tracks on this album. One of them is the one that we're going to be talking about. The other two were a re-recording of Beth with Eric Carr doing the vocals instead of uh, the original Peter Chris. And then there was another song called You Make Me Rock Hard. 
But the one we're talking about today, <laughs> yeah, as subtle as a heart attack, that one, yeah. Uh, but the one we're talking about today is Kiss's song, Let's Put the X in Sex. And uh, before we go off on a tangent, let's play the clip. Jeff. Hey. Does this sound familiar to you at all? <laughs> Let me just uh, quickly double back just a bit. Like, I think one of the problems that Kiss had in the 80s was once they took all their makeup off, they looked just like everybody else. Yes. They were in a field where they didn't stand out anymore. They could only capitalize on who they used to be for so long, which is why I think this greatest hits record with the three crappy new songs on it. So Gene Simmons was like, hey, remember us? We used to have makeup. You like that, didn't you? <laughs> And people were like, yeah, you know, you guys aren't don't rock quite as hard as docking. And people were like, <laughs> what are you talking about? You make <laughs> you make us rock hard. <laughs> uh, so in getting ready for this episode, I went back and listened again to Let's Put the X in Sex. And I remember when this was on the radio, I, the song was it didn't it only hit number 97 in the Hot 100 in the United States. So it didn't chart long because it sucks. <laughs> um, but as I'm listening to it for probably the first time, I don't know. 15 years of going out and listening to it on purpose i'm like this song is wicked familiar what the hell where does this song come from i know this from somewhere it can't be this song because i would remember that this song sounded like itself but it doesn't it sounds like another song right and (laughs) when i went to the wikipedia page to see who who was there for the production and who wrote it and stuff it mentions that it sounds like robert palmer's addicted to love and it doesn't just sound like robert palmer's addicted to love it's the same friggin' song (laughs) You know what? I sync them both up at YouTube. It's the same song. I never picked up on that, but now I can't unhear it. <laughs> Maybe Paul Stanley heard that on his way to the shoot for the video or something mm. and was like, oh, I know exactly the song we need to do. Uh, we'll have to look up that song to see if Desmond Child had a writing credit in Addicted to Love because Desmond Child, who's a, a prolific songwriter, he, he does a lot of hits for... He worked with Kiss a lot, and I know he worked with Aerosmith as well. So maybe he had his hand in that one. He was just like, hey, get this riff. Check this out. It's like, we'll take two of them. Uh, right, we'll take two of them, right? <laughs> like Kiss trying to find their identity in the 80s without their makeup. So we're not going to be superheroes no more. So uh, we're just going to fuck everything, right? That'll be our gimmick. <laughs> that, uh, that's not even like that big of an exaggeration. I remember seeing Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons on Oprah Winfrey. And Oprah, no, not in so many words, was like, so you guys just like... Get the hell off me, you two. No, that's not what she said. <laughs> She's like ripping off her clothes. Don't forget me. So, <laughs> so yeah, she was like, so you guys just like have sex with everyone? And Gene Simmons is like, yes, and I take pictures. So, yeah, Kiss had a hard time finding their way in, in the 80s and into the 90s. And if, for my money, though, they put out an album, uh, I think it was like 1991, 1992, somewhere around there, called Revenge. And out of the no makeup era, I thought, you know, they finally kind of like hit their stride. And then a couple of years later, it's like, well, let's put the makeup on and uh, get the other guys back in the band and let's start making money again. That'll be a thing. Right. 
Yeah. It was either that or Gene Simmons was going to have to keep making movies. And he, I'm sure he was like, uh, I'm really busy here <laughs> and I can't get out to get late. Yep. There's no time for women. The funniest thing about this song, though, is the video. I don't know who put up the $8 to produce it. <laughs> it looks like they spent all that money on uh, borrowing some leather for <laughs> for the band. So, like, from Hot Topic. For yeah, whatever sucks. reason, Paul Stanley does not have his guitar slung over his shoulder. Paul Stanley is not, I mean, he's a great front man, but he needs that guitar slung over his shoulder. You know, it's kind of like. Yeah. Yeah, he is so not David Lee Roth. Yes. He is not. He is not at all. Yeah. And Paul Stanley is the best Paul Stanley in the world, and he is the worst David Lee Roth. And in this, in the video, they kind of have him dancing around like David Lee Roth, right? He sort of looks like, when he's dancing around in the video, he looks like Eddie Murphy showing you how white people dance in Raw. <laughs> That's what he looks that's like. That's almost exactly like, oh. what he looks like. That's exactly what he looks and like. And the yeah, worst the worst corn dog of the whole part of the video is whenever he says, let's put the X in sex, which, by the way, is a horrible line. But whenever he says, let's put the X in sex, he keeps on, like, putting the X sign, like, over his chest with his hands. It's like, yeah, let it go. Or he crosses his arms, yeah. like, in the wall. Ugh, it's terrible. Yeah. This song puts the S in suck. <laughs> uh, you know what is a good song, though? When Doves Cry by Prince. It is. Yeah. So, trivia question for the week. It is not Prince. It is no member of the revolution who plays bass guitar on When Doves Cry by Prince. I'm going to stay with Bootsy Collins. Uh, It's not Bootsy Collins, but would you like a hint? Sure. The same person that plays bass guitar on this song also played bass on a couple of Doors songs. Oh, so what you're telling me is it was David Bowie's saxophone teacher. I got it. No, what I'm telling you is the answer is nobody. There is no bass line to the song When Doves Cry by Prince. Prince had recorded a bass line, but he ended up ultimately taking it out of the song. Just like there is no bass player in the doors. Oh, look at that. What a... Tripped up by technicality. Yep, curveball. Yep. There is no baseline to When Doves Cry by Prince. Suck on that. Puts the F in f- <laughs> All right. So that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in exactly seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. If you have friends, you should tell them about our show. And if you don't have friends, tell the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. 